Hello everyone and welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. My name's Liz Murphy and joining me today is friend and colleague Beck. Hello Beck. Hi, how are you? I'm good, I'm good Beck and I'm, I'm <laughs> glad I've got you sitting in, in the, the chair beside me virtually because today's story is uh, told from a social worker who works in the acute mental health care setting, something that Mim and I have never worked in. But you, on the other hand, Beck, have some experience in that, right? Yes, yes. I've worked in acute mental health settings, uh, including older person's mental health, uh, adult mental health, adolescent mental health briefly as well. And also I've had family members who have been on the inside of acute mental health units as well. And also thank you so much for asking me. Oh, my pleasure. Today. It's great to have you sidled up beside me. And wow, with that wealth of experience, both professionally and lived, uh, it'll be lovely when we have the opportunity to reflect together on our story, mm-hmm. which is told by a wonderful social work storyteller who um, tells this really interesting, quirky tale. And I I really am happy for the first five minutes of her story to contextualise something that I think our non-Australian listening people will need, and it is the concept of rat bag, Um, and, and she will explain it. But just briefly, when we talk about rat bag in Australia, it's it's um, certainly not an offensive term. It's not something that's commonly used, I find, in, in the circles that I move in. Beck, I don't know about you, but it is something that is quite an oldest type of, of expression, do you think? Yes. Yeah, I'd say it's an, an expression that's been used probably before my generation, but I think there are a lot of terms in Australia that other people might Mis- misunderstands or think that it's actually offensive. For example, bastard, we don't use that here. Yeah. It's not considered offensive. It's considered, I-, I guess, kind of a mateship or a friendly joking term. True. And every so often we, we spend a bit of time like now just kind of uh, explaining something that's quite nuanced to Australian language, mm-hmm. right? And yep. this social worker talks about that a little bit in relation to where she's coming from when she uses that term to describe the person that she works with uh, in this story. Um, and so, I, I'm, I mean, I, I don't think we need to say anything more other than I think you'll enjoy this story. It go for about, you know, 20 minutes. And then Beck and I will come back and we'll share our thoughts and our reflections um, with you. So enjoy. I came into social work uh, quite accidentally and it wasn't something that I'd planned through my life. Um, And when I did my social work degree, mental health was something that intrigued me. Uh, I graduated in 1995 and have worked um, all through my social work life in the field of mental health in two different countries. Uh, The bulk of my experience has been since 2002 in a very busy, acute inpatient setting. Uh, The hospital is a declared mental health facility 
uh, clients are brought in for assessment and treatment either as a scheduled patient and are usually detained under the Mental Health Act and they're forced to take treatment because they're at risk of harm to themselves or others. Now, this um, setting and situation is often very uh, contradictory to all the social work um, principles that uh, are drummed into our head for the entire degree that we go through. Uh, you know, the freedom, the freedom to decide how um, the person wants to live their life, the authority over targeted amount of dollars and the support uh, and the responsibility and the confirmation. Um, so in a setting like this, there's, it's terribly challenging for the social work um, profession. Um, but um, I think um, our core values of service and social justice and dignity uh, is something that we can actually use for these clients who are basically coerced and forced into taking treatment and therapy um, against their will. Uh, now, with the the hospital that I work in, uh, it's usually a multidisciplinary team. Um, and and um, follows quite a, a stringent medical model. And clients are usually uh, referred um, to our service um, through um, a crisis that they've been through. So there's a constant, um, you know, uh, presentations of uh, clients who are very unwell, who have either attempted to take their life or attempted to hurt someone else, or are going through very acute psychotic episodes um, and hence in huge crisis in their life. Um, re referrals are usually um, clients who have severe mental health issues um, and some drug and alcohol issues and uh, some clients have cognitive um, and personality disorders as well. So with um, me working in an acute uh, mental health facility, we usually have um, referrals that we could get either through the handover that happens every morning at nine o'clock or through um, the multidisciplinary case review that we have uh, once a week. Um, there is a huge responsibility for the team in this setting because clients are often forced to take treatment and the responsibility that every team member for their role um, is quite high. In our case with social work, the role is very much the person's social issues. Um, that's uh, their, the place they live in, the incomes they get, uh, what kind of family connections they have, um, and also their connection with the community. Now, um, with mental health, uh, there is no definite box. And I often think with mental health clients, uh, we're always trying to um, plug a square hole with a round peg um, because quite a few of our clients are not the norm. They are different. They are different uh, because they, um, you know, have um, attitudes and values and um things that happen in their life that are not uh, normally what happened as an everyday uh, person. And, and, you know, if you look at the whole uh, mental health diagnostic criteria, um, it's quite, um, it's not very straightforward. And, and often there is no test or 
x-ray or blood test that you could do to give someone a diagnosis. Now, um, when I look at um, meeting a lot of my clients, one client specifically stands out to me uh, is a client who was very young and I was asked to do a psychoeducation um, with the client and he had his first diagnosis of schizophrenia. And so I sat with a 22-year-old person uh, who had a diagnosis of schizophrenia and handed him a pamphlet after talking to him about the illness. Um, And when you actually look at what the pamphlet says, it's quite um, shocking because the pamphlet says that the treatment for schizophrenia is usually lifelong and often involves a combination of medication, psychotherapy and coordinated specialist care service. And I think that's really damning for the client as well as the family. And when I was talking to the young person and his mother, I felt um, the, the blood drained from the mother's face. But the young boy's reaction was very different. And he said, social worker, why can't I just be one of the rat bags? Um, the, the people who live outside of the norm, the people who um, have odd eccentric behaviours. I could be someone who was just hearing voices and seeing things uh, and smoke pot to mask what I was feeling. Uh, so there's there brings up another question, and often this is a debatable one about mental health being triggered by using um, substances. But is it the other way around? Do clients actually use substances to mark the um, the symptoms or the psychotic symptoms that they are having? Um, and and he the next day gave me this book, and this book was this amazing book that was written by. Keith Dunstan, um, the Melbourne journalist in 1979, and a book that basically celebrated rat bags, you know, rat bags that um, were people who um, had shocking behaviours, who stood out, who um, had these lovable characters, who had uh, wild ideas, but basically there were people who um, didn't harm themselves and neither did they harm anyone else. Um, and, and some of the, the characters in the book actually uh, were quite um, detailedly described and there was even um, newspaper clippings and dates and cuttings uh, about the various uh, funny and sometimes odd behaviours that they um, indulged in. Um, Keith Dunstan um narrated lives of Barry Humphreys and pro-heart Jermaine Greer featured in the book. But the client, the 23-year-old client, also talked about B. Miles, who featured in the book, who was one of those uh, clients who presented to a mental health system and constantly argued her own case and never ended up with a diagnosis of mental health. So through my years, I think I've seen many a rat bags. Um, Rat bags who um, didn't fit the norm, uh, rat bags who we found it really hard to control, rat bags who uh, didn't walk the line. Um, and one of them uh, is this very, very charming uh, 68-year-old person. Now, I usually go to work at 8 o'clock in the morning. I, um, it's a locked ward, so I opened the door, walked right down the patient's corridor to my room. Um, and this particular day, this smartly dressed uh, very larrikin Australian man stood out. He 
had his big boots um, full of mud stains, um, a nice dress pant, a shirt, a collared shirt, uh, and definitely a bucket hat on his head. And I said hello to him and he gave me the usual good day and wanted to know where I was and who I was and what I was going to do and chatted with him along the corridor when I reached my office. At handover that morning, um, I was told that there was this um, 68-year-old untreated um, man diagnosed with schizophrenia who basically needed um, was sent to us on a section 33 uh, because he had failed to attempt attend court hearings. And now the court hearings that he basically needed to attend was uh, for unpaid traffic fines. Now, the unpaid traffic fines, I have an issue with this in Australia. Um, how does someone end up in jail? Uh, because they haven't paid their fines. Um, I think it's um, one of those issues that constantly quite a few of us, us social workers uh, battle with um, is the fines that are mounted up by uh, people who have um, been issued with infringements like, you know, walking against a red light or, um, you know, a fine that... Um, this man had numerous fines, one of which was he hadn't strapped his helmet onto his head properly while he was driving his Vespa scooter down the street. Um, and, you know, these fines banked up. Anyway, so when the referral was given to me, I um, immediately knew who they were talking about because um, he had that certain charm and he definitely stood out with the way he dressed. Uh, and he was one of those lovable ratbag characters. Um, so when the multidisciplinary team sat down to discuss him, um, it was um, quite a difficult situation we had to contend with because we had the police um, that we had to satisfy that he didn't reoffend. Uh, we had the prison system to also fall in line with in terms of his section 33 where he had to be treated for his mental health condition and also sent off to a safe space. So it was one of those issues where it was going to be really difficult um, for us to work with and to try and get the person uh, conform to a norm. And the norm um, of what we uh, accept nowadays is that someone has to um, you know, live in a place, have a shelter, food, clothing, uh, and people around them. When we discussed the case, uh, the person was basically diagnosed when he was uh, very young, 19, with schizophrenia, had moved interstate um, and lived in this big city uh, opposite a warehouse um, beside a little... Um, shop that had um you know a, a space beside it to park the car um and he lived in his car he had um never had a house uh he had no issues with living in his car um the history of the client said that he had no formal contact with any services except 5 years before this when he had uh, had a fall, broke his hip and ended up in hospital. And the notes stated that he um, 
when in hospital, the social worker actually uh, dealt with him and had very efficiently tracked his family down um, in a state across Australia. Uh, the family were quite happy to have him back because he had a granny flat uh, in the family home. And um, they had um, sent him back um, on a very expensive flight wheel accompanied by mental health workers back to his own state. Uh, but apparently weeks later, he hitchhiked um, across the Nullarbor back to the city that he was sent from um, through truck drivers who came back to the city he was in. And there he was back again living um, in this little van, in this little car. Now, the recommendations of the team was that um, definitely put him on antipsychotic medication, uh, find out uh, what his income and assets were, uh, what his family uh, situation was, and if he had any other physical health issues. Uh, and so a week went by, and basically he was of good health. Um, he had about a fair amount, thousands of dollars in the bank. He was on a disability pension, um, and the psychiatrist started him on some antipsychotic medication. But given his age, uh, the antipsychotic medication did have quite a bad reaction. Um, it had really had um, terrible side effects um, for this um, older gentleman. And so he went from being this flamboyant, loud, um, well-dressed person to someone who was um, droopy, sleeping, um, and also very shaky on his legs. And there was this high risk that he would fall and really injure himself. And so... Um, a week into the psychiatric medication and there was a definite um, uh, there was quite a, a clear indication that the, the medication was too strong for him and it was a very small dosage so the medication was reduced and the team um, basically came up with um, the recommendation that he needed to go into residential aged care um, and majority of the team actually favoured it um, except myself. Um, and I knew having spoken to him and spent a lot of time with him and had having taken him out to get some of his clothes and belongings from his car that was very safely uh, beside the shop, um, looked after by the shop owners. And it seemed that he was happy. He had a great life. He had money in the bank. He had a safe place to stay, sleep in. He went across the street to get his lunches and dinners and have a little bit of socialization with friends. And he used the shop for his showers and his and his um, other personal hygiene needs. He was not someone who was, um, you know, dirty or ill-kept or unhygienic. His, in fact, his, um, his car was so well organized that it had everything he needed there. And one of the odd things about him was that he had this idea that the water was actually poisoned. And so he would get the truck drivers to bring him water from different other states that he thought that the water wasn't poisoned with. So he had all these little jerry cans around his truck filled with water that he could drink or use to brush his teeth or wash the utensils that he might have used to eat his um, supper. So when the medication didn't suit um, and the idea for residential aged care came up, I often question the fact of residential aged care. And I often find people defend 
putting um, older people into residential aged care is the fact that they would fall over, they would hurt themselves, and finally at the end result is that they would die. And to me, that argument doesn't make sense because it's proven and there's so much evidence to show uh, older people who are actually placed in residential aged care uh, actually pass away within the first year of them moving into residential aged care. So um, what are we going to do? Schedule this person through or get him a guardianship hearing under the Mental Health Act and force him into residential aged care and he dies unhappy or are we going to discharge him back home into the community uh, into his van and he dies maybe a few years later but terribly happy and living the way he likes to live his life and so I think the psychiatrist was quite amenable um, to the client's desire to go back to his car beside the shop and so said to me that if I, as a social worker, could come up with two very vital things, one, that he doesn't get into trouble with the law again, and two, that he has an address that we could discharge him back, then we could work out a discharge plan. And that was quite easy because I think a few calls to various people and one definitely to his family um, was an idea that we could approach the shop that he lived beside that actually helped him um, with their um, using their facilities to see if they would allow him to use their address. And so I did have a meeting with them and the client and they, uh, it was amazing to see their interaction with him. So there was this group of young ethnic men who ran the shop and they teased him and had a laugh with him and, you know, gave him food and drinks and anything else they thought um, he would like and they were quite happy to actually um, you know um, encourage him to live beside their place thought it would be atrocious if we locked him up into residential aged care and we're quite happy for him to use the address that they had as his discharge address um, and when I was a little uh, puzzled and also scratching my head about what I was going to do with him not getting um, having issues with the law one of them um, pulled me aside and said to me maybe if we hid his uh, Vespa scooter that he rode around um, on the opposite side of the road which he had a fine for or didn't wear a helmet or sometimes would ride it on the pedestrian crossing or have no lights on at night that was one of the fines he got $114 for not having lights on uh, and driving in the dark um, and and he might think that it's lost or stolen and then he wouldn't get in trouble with the law um, so it seemed a good idea at that stage um, and so they hid his scooter in their little garage at the back the client thought the scooter was lost and so we had a one major problem of getting into trouble with the law solved the psychiatrist was all right to discharge the client onto um, the address of the shop with his uh, into his car, and um, I. Uh, uh, this is the other thing that I think should mention is that I live and work in the area that I work in, and I was quite happy to um, walk past um, his car once a week to check on how he was going, if there was anything that he needed. Um, and I did that for, for quite a long time. Um, I, I guess this um, person 
um, and many other people that I uh, meet through my mental health social work um, career, I find really strikes a chord with me about the perfect life that we constantly are striving to have. Why do we always need to have things that are black and white? Why can't we just do a gray? Why do we always have to have people to fit a norm? Um, I, I find that even my children often um, talk about things having to be this way or that way or measuring uh, their friends by how big their houses are or what style of car their dad um, drives or where they went off to a holiday. Um, why are the measures that we use so definitive, so stringent um, and, and so sharp and cruel at times? I think the Australian rat bag is an amazing thing. A person who's free to be who he is, the person who's free to be happy with what they have, and basically a person is free to live the life that he wants best. So yay to the Australian rat bag, and I think we just need to be more tolerant with each other and just accept the new normal that's for all of us to be different. Esteemed guest, I want to throw, give you the right of, of ref, first reflection. How did you find her story? Yeah, I, th I found her story really interesting and I thought she did a really brilliant job in a difficult situation. Uh, I often find that it's very difficult and it sounded very difficult for this social worker in maintaining her social work ethics in a system that takes away people's choice. Uh, and in this situation, she did it really beautifully with this 68-year-old 60, man. I, I agree with you. Yeah, and his I agree life is very you, different. Beth. I think I'm glad that you kicked off with that whole, a whole clash of self-determination versus, you know, who determines capacity and who determines how a person lives their life um, and, and, and what happens if they perhaps don't live it according to some mainstream concept of, of you know, lifestyle choices and, um, you know, how, where we choose to live and how we choose to present ourselves to the world. And, and I thought it was wonderful her valuing this, this man's uniqueness and eccentricities as well. Yes, yeah. And it, and it sounds like it was quite tricky because he was scheduled as a result of unpaid fines. So in that situation, he was deemed a risk to himself or others. I'm not sure exactly how things went there, but, you know, who determines whether someone is a risk and who determines how he should live his life who determines what medication he should go on does he have a choice in the matter does he have a say and I think in this situation in particular when he was medicated he went from being loud flamboyant to droopy sleepy and shaky with a high falls risk that's that's a big change oh, yes to be going through for someone yeah and look you raise a lot just in that in that um that reflection just there Beck just the, the question mark over who has the power in 
uh, you know, scenarios like this. And, and I was really curious. I'd never heard of anything like that where someone could actually be scheduled into an acute mental health care setting because of unpaid fines. I mean, I heard the outrage from the social worker and I hear mm. it with you too. And I've just, is that for real? Like, can that, that clearly happens in our systems? Yeah, I'd, I'd say, I'd, I don't know what all the details were in this particular situation, but I mean, people are scheduled for many various reasons that we probably wouldn't necessarily agree with as social workers. Um, I think all the people in the system or most of the people in the system are trying to do the best they can by the people that we're working with. However, sometimes the system is structured in a way that we have to act in a way that we might not agree with not just social workers but I imagine many other health professionals as well it's it can be quite limiting and challenging well it kind of sounded like there were a number of systems that had come had clashed in some regards or or this particular gentleman had clashed with in relation to the the police the legal system and then also a, a, a mental health system where he was deemed to have questionable capacity given his living living circumstances and i i agree with you beck i think this is a this is one of our really brave creative social workers who went up against both those those systems i would imagine she did a whole lot of advocacy around those unpaid fines but also with her team and we've talked about this in the past where it is so hard to be that voice to say hang on a minute we're not going to be transferring this guy into residential care because you've deemed him to be safe. That's just not that this man. Let's just check out a few things and and um, the way in which she was able to look outside of what often we can do as social workers is look at what are the services available. But she was so much more creative. One of the things that I, I thought was really was really great was how she this social worker looked outside of you know, mainstream services and looked at the environment in which this man lived his life and the community that he lived his life with and how wonderful it was to see the neighborhood supporting this man in his rap bagness like and I'm doing little air quotes here Beck you can see me but in his unique way of living his life that there were people there that were really his neighbors who were quite happy to and friends I guess to support him to be discharged back to his van yeah absolutely and I think the team seemed to be quite on board with it when the social worker made her case and I liked how they ended up supporting her and agreed to the discharge plan when it fit in the parameters that were acceptable based on the system that they were working in which was really which was really nice to see because they worked together and they collaborated so it wasn't just a social worker up against a challenging system it was a team of people who worked together to be able to make this man's discharge happen in a way that was honoring his self-determination and I guess honoring his his wishes and what he wanted to do but it does come back to that question when he was heavily medicated what what rights do we have to impose a medication 
or force medication on somebody who might not necessarily want medication and how do we deem his risk of harm to others as such that he needs to have medication forced on him when maybe that's not what he wanted, especially when it completely changes his affect. Well, Beck, you would have experience in that. Like what, what is that like being that social worker who, is that part of your role as a social worker in this setting that you question sometimes the enforced medication onto some of the people that are in the unit? I find that's a really, really tricky area and it's going to vary facility to facility, doctor to doctor, um, you know, nursing team to nursing team. Everybody is so unique and so different. Not everybody is going to agree on the same thing when it comes to that. I mean, some doctors might be more conservative. Some doctors might be more more likely to medicate heavily. So I don't like to make sweeping statements, but absolutely, yes, there can be somebody who can come in who I've seen people who are very flamboyant, very happy, auditory, auditory hallucinations that were saying really wonderful, good things, and they were active and vibrant and then heavily medicated and ended up very flat and low and quiet. Uh, I have seen that before, but I won't say that it happens... It's tricky. I don't want to make sweeping statements and throw a whole profession under the bus. But yeah, absolutely, it can happen. And when it does happen, I think a lot of social workers do say, well, what can we do? Because we're one profession against a big team of professions. So it can be really tricky. And then it's about deeming the risk. Are they a risk to others? Um, How do they impact the family? What are the family's wishes? But in this particular case, it seems very much so like he wasn't a risk to anyone else physically. Um, The unpaid fines or whatever the issues were with his scooter, obviously they were an issue, but where was that risk coming from, you know? And why do we think it's okay to medicate some people but not others? Like if you're not productive is one thing that I've thought about a lot. If you're not productive and you can't produce capital, you don't have the capacity to work, is your value, are you valued less than somebody who is considered productive? Do we medicate people because we want them to fit into a specific box that maybe not everyone should have to fit in? And I think the social worker really covered that nicely in her story. She valued this this man's colour that he brought to... uh his life but also to the neighborhood as well and that was ah, really special I thought Um, and and I'd be hopeful that that's something that a lot of social workers would would share and value in the acute mental health setting that um, one one's uniqueness and eccentricity shouldn't be the the reason to drive the medication right like I would imagine if you're someone who has learnt to live with and value some of the features of, as you said, say, for instance, some of the auditory um, um, impact of the, of the mental health issue or, or maybe it, it's, it's something that they have developed a, a relationship with that they also value, you know, having a family member myself who has uh, lived with bipolar and who actually finds that the medication takes away his artistic nature um, that I also see that you know like surely as social workers we would support 
a person like this to 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 push back you know if it's just around me not fitting in is it if it's just around me not living a particular life or as you say being a productive person um is that is that grounds enough to push the the medication yeah yeah i mean it's so difficult because like I said, every situation is different. Every unit is different. Sure. Every doctor is different. But yeah, there are definitely cases where this happens, where people do end up on medication they absolutely flatly agree to. You know, they ended up on a community treatment order where they must have medication. It's a part of their community treatment order. I mean, and it is something that I think social workers are working with often in mental health facilities. I mean, you have a choice. You can toe the line and follow the system or you can end up in multiple conflicts with sometimes which sometimes we do which is just because we're all working under competing pressures we're trying to look at the person's rights self-determination make sure we're advocating on their behalf making sure that they're living the life that they choose to live whereas other professions have different pressures um, getting somebody out of hospital quicker making sure the person doesn't isn't a risk of harm to themselves or others and in a situation like that, we can often end up in conflict because what our priorities are don't exactly match what the priorities are or the purpose of employment or the purpose of, you know, people being there and that come from other professions. What, what I was thinking about as you were speaking then was how this conversation yet again reflects what a good supervision session can sound like. And so this is, you know, like... For many of our listeners, they let us know that um, when they listen to us, they think, oh, this is what supervision can look like. And I'm thinking what you're saying to me now is exactly what, especially if you're finding your feet in this area or especially if you feel that ethical clash, right, between self-determination and who deems capacity and what it's like to actually advocate for your your client, your patient, your person, your consumer, if they're telling you that, that they, they are really resistant to what's happening to them within the system. And so what I, would, what I wanted to highlight was this is a space like with good supervision to actually tease this stuff out so that you don't get broken in the system too, so that you don't get swept along or and, and have your ethics Um, regularly in like challenged or that you feel your fight kind of um, deadened like it's hard work to be that one voice all the time so around discernment and what battles you take on is another thing that you know working in in environments like this you need to be able to articulate your your thinking I guess in a way that manages like in this case to sway the team to be a little bit more creative in the way in which they discharge this man back home. And I agree. And this is a good example of a team that were more, that were really open to do that, that were really happy to work with the social worker to have this plan put in place. So it's a good example of not just a social worker in that situation trying to work in this system, but actually all of the team working together in this system that can absolutely break us because it's not about the people we're working with. It's not about the individuals that come into the services that burn us out. It's the systems in place sometimes 
that we are working in that make it really difficult and really challenging and sometimes exhausting because we feel like we're hitting our heads against brick walls over and over again. So that's why this particular story is particularly inspiring because she was able to overcome um, some of those system clashes in such a way that that the the gentleman could actually continue to live his uh, colourful and rich life. Um, with the support of his of his friends and neighbours. And wasn't it beautiful how his neighbours came along and came to the table and were supporting him? They really they really liked him. They valued him. They brought him food. They made sure he was looked after. And then these beautiful truck drivers shipping water into state. <laughs> I really loved that. There are just so many kind and generous people out there that were a part of this plan that made it work. You know, along with the doctors, along with the other allied health professionals, they all together made this work. And I think the social workers are a really strong driving force in that. Totally. And I think um, maybe, Beck, we might end in the same way that that social worker did and celebrate the wrap bags of our neighbourhood and community and profession. I reckon there'd be, we could have a whole podcast on the social work rat bags because I think there needs to be a rat bagness about us social workers too, that we, you know, bring colour to the areas in which we, we work in, but we also value that and, and you, people's uniqueness and their right to determine how they live their life. Um, so I, I reckon so let's celebrate the rat bags of the world. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So, Beck, thank you again for sharing the mic with me. It was lovely to listen to your insights. Um, and I, I would encourage people who want to share their voice to contact us, socialworkstories.com. And you can access all our various social media uh, apps through there. Um, but also you might also want to reach out and, and communicate with Beck which, you know, drop her an email via that website there. Yeah. And Beck, hopefully this won't be our last conversation. Yes, hopefully not. Hopefully not. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me today. Take care and keep up the good fight, Beck. <laughs> Thank you. Same to you.